All of life is a game. All of it, says Kamal Gupta, a man who took big risks throughout his life. Risks he details in his book, Play It Right, which is the story of a young graduate of the Indian Institute of Technology who took a chance in the mid-1980s and left India for the United States. Gupta's story is more than the story of an immigrant in search of the American dream. His is a story of a man who took big risks. After securing a well-paying job in tech, he became bored. And to alleviate his boredom, he became fascinated with blackjack. He was determined to master the game and win. And win he did, so much so that he became a professional gambler. Then, two years later, he bet again and did two things he said he would never do. One, work on Wall Street, and two, live in New York City. His journey to the top of the financial markets is fascinating and insightful. I invited Mr. Gupta, the author of Play It Right, to join me for a conversation that matters about the value and risks of taking chances and how not taking them is also a gamble. Mr. Gupta, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. You know, in reading your book, I'm trying to determine whether or not you're saying, you know, taking risks and, you know, gambling in essence is, is a bad thing or is it a good thing? Because, you know, you, you were in two kinds of markets, Blackjack and Wall Street, that some people would go, holy smokes. From your perspective, you know, uh, are, are they really just metaphors for life? I believe so. I mean, I think um, there is some truth to the statement that um, life is a gamble. And in my case, I believe life is a game. Um, and if you look at various aspects of life, you know, certainly the problems that you come across in life, um, they're games that have to be played as cliches as it sounds. And in my opinion, and in my case, I believe that the key to success is playing the game right, more than focusing on the end result so much. Um, it's about how I played blackjack that was important. It was a, how about I managed money that was important. It was not the end result. The end result just took care of itself. Um, so my focus has always been on the game and playing it well. So you said how you play the game, but there, there can be different ways of looking at the definition of the word how. Is that from an ethics perspective or is it the methodology? Now that's a great question, because the answer is it is both. Um, for instance, in blackjack, in terms of counting cards to turn the odds in your favor, there is exactly one right way to do it. Now you can use different systems, but the idea is the same. How do you keep track of the cards to turn the odds in your favor? That's basically the method. Now, in the bond market or the US mortgage market where I was you know, focused for a quarter century, there are no books to read, there, there's no methodology that someone will hand you. So it took me seven years of constant thought and experimentation to come up with a method that, to me, demonstrably turned the odds in my favor. And then I used that method for 20 years to manage money at large hedge funds, to basically prove the fact that the odds were in my favor. And you know, I compiled a phenomenal streak of 103 consecutive months of positive returns. But your, to your point, it's the method of how you play the game and the ethics are just as important. Because part of my battle with the casinos in blackjack was the fact that 
I found it outrageous that the casinos barred card counters. So essentially, if you had the audacity to use your brain while playing the game, they would kick you out, which means that they're only catering to gamblers who could easily be parted with their money. And I thought that was terribly unfair and, and borderline, un I mean, immoral and ethical, unethical. So that's how I fought that. And in financial markets, I think ethics, especially for someone who's gone through the 2008 crisis, and as I detail in the book, I didn't see the crisis coming from a mile away, but I was, as early as 2004, I was terrified of CDOs and subprime mortgages, which, as it turned out, caused the crisis in 2007 and 2008. So there are a lot of decisions that I make in 2004, 2005, which are purely ethical in nature, and I'm outraged by what's going on around me, and I, I leave a really prestigious firm to go to uh, a much smaller place, uh, simply because I have a serious problem with the ethics of the large company that I'm working at. And that's a very important component in playing the game and playing it right. <clears throat> but also, you are, uh, you know, the fact that you had the ability to use your brain and win at blackjack shows that you have uh, extraordinary mental capabilities. To be able to take that same kind of approach, which was to understand the rules and then figure out a method that could uh, produce, as you pointed out, a winning streak more than 103 months, um, you had to develop a system. And there's people who are going to be watching this right now and say, okay, what is that system? You know, there's a chapter in the book that details the system. There's a, there's a chapter, I think it's number 22, yes. called The Mortgage Puzzle, which, because I figured when I was writing the book, um, if I'm going to talk about, blackjack is easy, anyone can pick up a book and learn how to count cards. The mortgage market is far more complex. Financial instruments are like unfathomable in terms of its complexity. So if I'm going to claim that I have a method, I have to detail it into some level of detail. So I believe it's chapter 22, but it's, the title of the chapter is The Mortgage Puzzle. And it goes through starting with what a mortgage is, which everybody knows, to how to invest in that market, how, what, what, what are the reasons why everyone gets it wrong, and what is it that I do that's different. Can you give us uh, four or five of the key points in that? I know that you want people to go buy the book, but at the same time, no, people who are like, watching right now are going to go, okay, give me more. Well, <laughs> I was determined that if I was going to play this game, the odds had better be in my favor. So one of my, the core principles in life for me is I will not play a game if, unless I'm convinced that the odds favor me. Because the longer you play a game where the odds are against you, the more guaranteed you are of losing in the long run. Uh, which is why casinos have these huge buildings, and same is true for investment banks. Um, so from the very beginning, I was determined to find an edge which was mathematically provable. Like the advantage that the player has in blackjack can be mathematically proven, uh, which is why casinos throw you out, because they know that it's, it's, it's true, that you have the advantage. So I wanted something similar in the, in the bond market. And otherwise, I have no interest in playing the game, because anyone can roll dice. It doesn't take any skill. So I mean, anyone can go play you know, blackjack and surrender the odds to the casino. Right? It's not difficult. It's how you beat the casino that is hard. It's the same thing is true with financial markets. Anyone can beat uh, the market for a short period of time. You can get lucky. 
So I was interested in finding a method which would beat the market for the long haul. And it, it sort of, I detail in the book, in the, in the chapter, exactly what the problems were that I was trying to solve and how I narrowed the bond market to a very, you know, manageable problem. Like, the bond market is a very vast and complex problem. So you sort of have to strip it down to components that can actually be quantified. And that's what I did. What I find also absolutely fascinating is that you never crumbled under the pressure, um, especially when you first got started working in the financial sector. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about what it's like being dropped into the midst of that world with no experience and, uh, you know, being on the receiving end of a testosterone-infused uh, environment that is driven by fear and greed? I'd come to New York with the intention of giving it at least two years, that I was going to stick it out for two years, uh, no matter what. So that's what I did. And at the end of those two years, I was probably more miserable than I've ever been in life. And um, it was not just the culture of the trading floor, it was also the business practices of investment banks. And the biggest problem that I had with Wall Street was in moving from Las Vegas to New York, I had switched sides. Now I was working for the house. The very idea of which I would have found abhorrent in Vegas because the casinos were my enemy. And when I came, because I didn't know the first thing about finance, I didn't know that investment banks are called dealers because they are the house. I mean, I, it, the connection only became clear to me is like they're dealers, but they're like blackjack dealers in, in Las Vegas. So, I mean, how did I go from being a blackjack player to becoming a blackjack dealer? I mean, it's just wrong. But then before I could become a player, I needed to learn how to play the game. So that's what took seven years. But the, the business practices as well as the cultural environment of the place was extremely difficult for me to handle. And um, there is a point, you know, in the book somewhere like a third or a half of the way into the story where I come to a point where I felt like Wall Street had not only beaten me, but it had crushed my spirit and turned me into something that I despised, a quitter. So the question is, do I just run away from this, this battle or do I go back and fight one more time? And well, I do go back, spoiler alert. You know? What are the components uh, in your mind to being able to persevere and succeed, especially in a hostile, uh, you know, high level, you know, environment like the financial markets? How does one work their way through racism, intimidation, uh, aggressive behavior, uh, first of all, to learn the system and then be able to start to master it. Well, what were some of those uh, human characteristics that you discovered about yourself that now looking back on them, you can say, these matter if you want to, you know, fight your way through a difficult journey? I think um, the biggest quality that helped me during this journey was, in a word, resilience. Like, how do you take a beating and you and you keep on ticking you know and there are many points in time in the book where I get beat down whether when I first go start gambling or when I first show up on Wall Street or even two years into my Wall Street career or or even while I'm working you know at hedge funds 
it's never easy. And, and you know, there are obstacles in the way and some small and some pretty large. But, you know, and this is a bit of a side note, but I've suffered from a certain kind of arthritis since I was 15 years old. And just having been in constant physical pain throughout my life has made me more resilient to other forms of pain and difficulties. So I can handle, you know, I mean, as difficult as it was, I mean, I, and much against my wishes, I did go back after two years, I mean, after taking 100 days off. Um, but I think the number one, I mean, it's this whole following the American dream is never going to follow a straight line for anyone. There's bound to be setbacks along the way. And the only way to overcome them is by being resilient. And then there's a whole bunch of other, you know, qualities that you need to beat financial markets, which are the same as what you need to beat casinos, which is making sure you have an edge, be patient for an opportunity, you know, um, you know, make sure you play with a large bankroll, you know, casinos and, and Wall Street. Love people who play with a small amount of money, lose it all and go home and then come back again. I mean, you need, you know, the a casino's biggest fear is a large, is a, an informed gambler with a large bankroll who can take them on. And something similar works in Wall Street <clears throat> as well. But I think the number one quality is resilience. Well, I want to attribute a, a, another uh, definition to you, and it comes from the book Anti-Fragile. Are you familiar with this book? I'm not. And it's the idea that you're like a samurai sword. The more hits you take, the stronger and tougher you get. It's beyond resilience. Uh, you know, it's like you drop a, a coffee mug off the, the floor and it breaks, but when you drop it off the floor and it bounces back and it's stronger as a result of the hit that it just took. And in reading your book, you take one hit after another, after another, after another, and you just seem to keep coming back stronger and stronger. It's this determination that, you know, it's kind of like, that's the best shot you got? Okay, you just made me stronger. And I got that feeling about you, but there must have been days when you were questioning your own ability to, to you know, oh, yeah. go back to work the next day. Well, one of those days was September 15th of 2008 when Lehman files bankruptcy. I mean, um, and it's the day which essentially brings my 103-month streak to an end. Um, I was completely lost, uh, I mean, for four days, and, and, and luckily I managed to get out of it, uh, the exposure, but not unscathed. I mean, it, it ended my streak, which, is, which was, I guess, okay, 103 months was long enough. Uh, but there are other times when I, like even the first time I go to a casino, it was just a brutal experience. And, and the only thing that kept me going is I saw the effect casinos and markets had on other people and how it made them into what I would never want to be. So that was like a good lesson to have. And there are some of these stories in the book interspersed here and there. Um, where how other people dealt with the same problem, you know, very differently from how I would have and how I took a lesson away from that. I think your last chapter is called The Closer. You were the closer, especially yes. in the, the hedge fund that you went back to work for. Who was the uh, person that you went back to work for and how did you build that, that hedge fund out? And I also found it very interesting in there how you explained your investment uh, philosophy to people who were investing. Uh, you know, as a way of closing out this interview, maybe you can wrap that up uh, for our viewers. This was another like risk, not so much a risk, but another challenge that I came across in spring of 2018. The individual who brought me into this business, you know, his name is Michael Gelband. He started 
a hedge fund in, in spring of 2018. And I was one of the first few portfolio managers to sign on. And he asked me to, you know, meet a few investors to help raise money. And I had never taken part in any marketing efforts at any place, hedge fund otherwise, before. And yet I sat down in front of these, these investors who collectively controlled several trillion dollars, you know, not each one of them, but collectively. And this happened like over a dozen times. And, and I, I walked into those meetings, especially the first one where I was terrified, um, not knowing what to say to them. And I, I decided that the only thing I can tell them is my life story and tell them how I ended up on, in, in this market how I attacked it and how I, you know, what the results were. Um, I mean, after all, what is marketing if not the telling of a good story? Um, so, and I was, you know, very pleasantly surprised by the effect uh, my talk had on the future in potential investors. And the talks went so well that the head of marketing at the hedge fund gave me a nickname, The Closer, which is why it's the title of the epilogue. And then, um, you know, it wasn't all due to my efforts because there were a lot of other people, big name people involved in, in the venture. But my contribution was to meet these investors and tell them my life story and tell them how I manage money, to give them a window into how this hedge fund was going to be run in the future. And in June of 2018, uh, the hedge fund opened as the largest, you know, with $8, $8 billion under management as the largest hedge fund launch in history. And the, that very idea, that gave me the idea of writing the book by saying that maybe I should share the story with you know, the world at large. So coming back to your uh, concept of how you play the game, both from an ethical perspective and also from an approach perspective, in there you talked about your strategy about picking companies that also played the game well. Can you just give us a little uh, insight into what that, that was, how you did that? In, in terms of the stock market or in terms yeah. of... In, ter uh, in terms of the career. stock market, you said there were certain companies, yes. certain kinds of companies yes. that you would focus on. And once to. again, it's how they play the game as well, isn't it? Yes, I, I'll be happy to share that with you because I had a very strict... I took a year off in 2012 because I was fascinated with the stock market, even though I'd never looked at the stock market before. And by the time 2009 rolled around and you know I was working for this very large hedge fund called Millennium, um, um, I sort of felt like, you know, I had accomplished a fair amount in the mortgage market and I was on the lookout for a new game and the stock market is a perfect challenge. So in 2012, I left Millennium to spend a year working on the, on the, on the stock market and I went through the financials of 300 of the top, the top 300 of the S&P 500 companies and I went through their financials and balance sheets and income statements and I found 10 or 15 that were worth owning and the parameters that I used was it was again back to how I attacked blackjack or, uh, or the mortgage market. I wanted to make sure the odds were in my favor. The way I did that was to first make sure the companies had no debt. So any financial company was automatically disqualified because they all have tremendous leverage. Because I've seen what leverage can do to hedge funds and to financial institutions. And the 2008 financial crisis was, you know, if I had to, there were many reasons for it. But the single biggest reason was leverage like how much these companies had borrowed. So I was determined to pick companies which did not have leverage because in my opinion, earnings on borrowed money are not as good as earnings made without borrowing money. Um, and 
Then the second important criterion was stable earnings, meaning I don't want a company that's whose earnings go shooting up or down. And I, I don't want, I mean, again, it's just the way I managed money, which was like, I don't want volatile returns. I want very stable earnings. So I look for companies with, like utilities are a great example. There was a company called Cisco, S-Y-S-C-O. Um, that was a great example, you know. Um, so I went back and I, and I especially saw what their performance was like during the financial crisis. Not so much the stock, because the stock price is a function of, you know, market sentiment, which I'm sort of trying to take out of the equation, right? You have to take emotions out of blackjack and markets. Uh, but so much so, but, but only what their earnings were like and what their stock price should have been. And the reason I left is because in 2012, with S&P around 12 or 1300, I was convinced the market was 40% undervalued. And it seems crazy that to say, I mean, that it seems obvious now that, you know, at 1200 and S&P 500, it was undervalued. But at the time, you would be surprised how many people thought I was crazy to say that. And I said, how many times in my life am I going to get a chance to buy some of the most liquid assets in the world, which I'm firmly convinced are 40% undervalued. And so I, I went back home, I bought these companies, I built a portfolio over the next 12 to 14 months, the S&P does go up to like 1700, which is roughly 40% higher. And Millennium asks me to come back. So, and they offered me a chance to manage money in the stock market as well as the bond market. Um, I thought about it and I decided that you couldn't do two jobs, both of those jobs simultaneously because the two markets are extremely different and the games have to be played very differently and I don't, didn't think I had the mental capacity to switch from one to the other through, during the day. So I gave up on the stock market and went back to the mortgage market in 2013. And I was there well, till 2018. So all of which uh, goes to your ability to uh, navigate your way through complex environments you have patience, you have faith, uh, and you played the game within the rules. And these are the components of being able to play it right, are they not? They are, and one of the other big components is taking emotions out of the equation. Um, emotions, you know, cloud your thinking and invariably cause you to make decisions which are not optimal or right, for lack of a better word. So if you can unemotionally make sure the odds are in your favor. I mean, and that gets you pretty far along to winning the game. Well, it's a fascinating read, a, a really interesting book, and I really appreciate you taking the time today to, to join me for this conversation. Thank you very much. It was great to be here. Thank you.